so my name is Ni Lach Ax, which is a Gixan name. That's the nation I come from. And I am from the village of Anspayach, the hiding place on the Xi'an, the River of Mist, up in northern British Columbia. If you're at the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia, when the Indigenous youth reclaimed and occupied the steps in support of the Wasowatan hereditary chiefs, you may have heard Nila Ax speak. His English name is Colin Sutherland Wilson, and he's Gixon. He's a storyteller, a knowledge keeper, an orator, a filmmaker, and a writer. Nila Ax grew up during the time of Delgumak vs. British Columbia, 1997. The Delgamok case saw the Gixon and the Wasowatan join forces as they battled in the Supreme Court of Canada for title and ownership of their traditional territories. And I was born in 93, so I, through my childhood, I was able to see the, the tail end of this kind of era of cooperation and, yeah, solidarity between our nations. And I was greatly inspired by what I witnessed during those years. The Gixon and the Wasowatan are neighboring nations. They have a strong history of cultural ties, intermarriage, and alliances in times of war. And so the Wasowatan have their Anuknuaten, which is the laws that they abide by, like the laws that come from the land, from the experience of their ancestors, and very much informs the entirety of the, the world view that they live in and their governance. And my people have very similar laws that we call the Ayukniye. When the Wasowatan hereditary chiefs called for solidarity actions, Nila Ax felt compelled to act. On a frigid Monday in January, he staged a week-long strike on the steps of the Legislative Assembly in Victoria. I could not stand by idly when I saw that Canada was forcibly invading Wasowatan territories hmm. and very much inflicting violence upon every facet of their livelihood. And seeing how the struggle to protect our territories, our rights and title, and through all the, the court actions, like the Wet'suwet'en have very much been walking step in step with the Gixan throughout this entirety. And so I recognized at that moment that, you know, whatever is happening to the Wet'suwet'en is very much happening to my own people because we are, you know, so deeply entrenched in this struggle together. As talks with the BC government broke down, the hereditary chiefs called for solidarity actions to take place. In response, land defenders peacefully evicted coastal gas link workers from the Yinta and set up checkpoints along Maurice West Service Road. The Supreme Court of British Columbia gave approval to an interlocutor injunction filed by Coastal Gas Link to remove the land defenders. In February 2020, armed with tactical gear, assault rifles, air support, and dogs, the RCMP enforced that injunction. 21 land defenders on the Yinta, or the traditional territories of the Wasowatan, were arrested, though none ended up facing charges. An article from the CBC reported in October 2020 that RCMP operations from January 2019 to March 2020 cost the province more than $13 million. Over the next few months, over 60 solidarity actions across Canada took place, Rail lines, ports, ferries, highways, and roads were shut down in support of the Wasowatan hereditary chiefs. 200 Canadian lawyers called for Canada to end its violation of the Wasowatan's right to free and informed consent. The irony? On November 28, 2019, the British Columbia government signed into law the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. 
Article 4 states that Indigenous people, in exercising their right to self-determination, have the right to autonomy and self-governance in matters relating to their internal and local affairs. Article 10 states that Indigenous people shall not be forcibly removed from their lands or territories. No relocation shall take place without the free, prior, and informed consent of the Indigenous peoples concerned and after agreement on just and fair compensation, and where possible, with the option of return. You're listening to Denny Talk. I'm your host, Cassidy Villabrin-Brackis. Welcome to episode two, Resistance. Resistance is ingrained in the psyche of most, if not all, Indigenous peoples throughout Canada. Whether it be structural racism, residential schools, the 60s and millennial scoops, the reserve system, dispossession of land, missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, queer, trans, and two-spirit folks, we as Indigenous peoples have endured and continue to endure a genocide meant to destroy and erase us from the land and history of so-called Canada. Yet we remain. Preserving our governance, our language, our land, our culture, and our traditions, we have endured the storm of colonialism, and we're fighting back. To help us understand how, we've already heard from Neil Axe, and we're going to hear from him a little later, but we're also going to hear from Pisu. They are Nehiwa, a full-spectrum birth worker, sex educator, and water and land defender. So just as a quick heads up and uh, ahead of time apology, I try to pronounce them with Sowetan, Gixon, and Nehiwa words and phrases. I apologize for any mispronunciations or inaccuracies. This episode deals with some potentially triggering medical content and discussions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. I'll introduce myself traditionally. Tanse Pisu Skonetsigasan, Lipsikopa Gotunia Gate, Miskuchioskaigen Miguchnuigen. Um hi, my name is Pisu. Um, I am a member of Samson Cree Nation, Musquachis. In Treaty Six Territory, in Amiskwachi Waskwaigen, also known as Edmonton, Pisu works for Ball Street Community Service, a local inner city nonprofit. Pisu is queer, disabled, um, full spectrum indigenous birth worker, sexual reproductive health educator, and land and water defender. They've been involved in birth work in one form or another for a very long time. I think it was meant to be. Um, when I was younger, I volunteered at the Red Deer Regional As a Hospital. teenager, they volunteered with the Maternity, Pediatric, and Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at the Red Deer Regional Hospital. And mostly it was like bringing food trays to the, to the families and to the children. Um, but some of it was interacting with babies and the children. And I, one of my like favorite parts of working in NICU was, um, they had a role as like baby cuddler. <laughs> um, so you would, you know, you'd cuddle these babies if you could. They come from a big family. They grew up around a lot of babies. So for Pisu, working with them and parents is second nature. Sometimes I was able to wash the babies. I was able to change the diapers. Um, and sometimes, you know, you just sit with them 
so I guess I've always kind of been involved with like families and being around babies and being around children. Pisu's childhood was also difficult. When they were six, they had a spinal cord infraction, which is essentially a stroke in the spine, and had to receive open heart surgery. I remember this. I remember this clearly. I remember I was at the Stollery here in Edmonton, and I was in my bed, um, and the, the this doctor, this white doctor, walked in, and he looked at me. He said, "You're never going to walk again. You're going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life." And I just. I remember getting, like, pissed off. <laughs> like, I got mad. Um, PC doesn't remember how long they were in the hospital for. They were six, and childhood time gets distorted. But they do remember their parents visiting consistently. When they did, PC's mother would gently prick the bottom of PC's feet with a sewing needle. One day, you know, I said, ow. And she's just like, oh. But before that, I was, I was also hooked up to a machine that would... Um, I guess tell me when my bladder was full. This is what this is what my parents told me, um, and I remember always telling the nurses, "I have to go pee. I have to go pee." And the nurses would be like, "Oh, nonsense! You're paralyzed. You can't feel anything." <laughs> um, and then one day, um, the machine was unplugged, and I told the nurse, "I have to go pee," and the nurse, you know, said that again. No, no, you don't. You're just feeling things. And then they realized the machine was unplugged. And I, in fact, did have the feeling that I had to go pee. They just ignored me. Pisu did regain feeling in their legs, but the road to recovery was long and difficult. During this time of my stay in the hospitals and physiotherapy and rehabilitation, I was still with my uh, family, like my aunt and uncle. Um, And we lived on the reserve so they would drive every day from the reserve to Edmonton to visit me, to take me to my appointments, to bring me home for weekend visits. Um, and they weren't, you know, receiving like any, like they were kinship. They weren't receiving any compensation for any of this. Mm-hmm. It was, this was out of their own pockets, um, which is something that, you know, child welfare should have covered. For some Indigenous peoples, kinship ties can be more interconnected and close-knit than traditional nuclear families. For instance, my second cousin, Georgina, was my mom's cousin, but she was more like an auntie to me. And my great aunties and uncles were more like grandparents to me and my brothers. Pisu calls their aunt and uncle their parents because they raised them. Pisu's parents were caring for them and their siblings and receiving little financial help. They lived on the reserve in the community, but their home was not wheelchair accessible. They asked the band, the government of the reserve, for financial help to make their home accessible for Pisu. The band, like the reserve, can you guys help us make the house wheelchair accessible so we can keep them here? Back in like 2001, my mom or my aunt was receiving $17 a day because, you know, they were climbing stairs with me, you know, five-year-old, six-year-old, kind of heavy, um, especially like my parents, my parents were getting a bit older. They're having to carry me around everywhere because um, the house was not wheelchair accessible. Um, and the band was, said no, 
the band's decision led to Pisu being moved into the foster care system. And I just want to make a quick note that the reserve system and the band council that govern them are the imposition of the Canadian federal government stemming from the legislation of 1876 with the creation of the Indian Act. Neela Axe is going to help us understand that a little later, but for now, I just wanted to point that out. To me, like, I, I look back on it and it's just like another, it, it just felt like another tool of breaking families apart. Because if, if the government said yes to being, to helping us make the house wheelchair accessible, I'd still be with like my aunt and uncle to this day. Um, but because of that, we got bounced around from home to home and I ended up in a group home. And so it kind of was like, it's, it was traumatic. Um, yeah. So I, I guess that was like another barrier that I faced. According to the 2016 census, there are over 28,000 children in care under the age of 15. Of those 28,000, about 15,000 are Indigenous children. So Indigenous children represent 52.2% of all children in care, even though they only represent 7.7% of all children in Canada. And to make matters worse, to this day, peace whose pain and their experience is undermined by doctors and nurses in the healthcare system in Alberta. The week before Pisu and I sat down virtually, they had a medical episode at work. Like my pulmonary embolism that I had on Tuesday. Yeah. Um, I was at work and, you know, thankfully, I, I work with nurses. Um, and thankfully, like, you know, these, these nurses are not racist. <laughs> um, and thankfully, they recognized the signs of PE, and they were there. They were there to advocate for me. But when Pisu got to the hospital, they were on their own. You know, um, I wasn't allowed to have access to pain medications. They they were just trying to give me Tylenols, and which has happened before. You know, there's this these stereotypes that, you know, Indigenous people come into the hospitals looking for their next fix. The medical staff denied them painkillers, offering them only Tylenol. They ran some tests, and then finally, after 21 hours in emergency, a doctor finally me. came in telling them... Yeah, it, uh... It looks like maybe you have blood clots in both lungs. Hmm and gives me meds and then discharges me. No follow-up, nothing. I went to- Looking for more concrete answers, Pisu went to their family doctor the next day to follow up. And he's like, yeah, you were supposed to, you know, get a follow-up to go back in three months. And I was like, they never told me that. Um, so I feel like I, being and being indigenous and disabled, like um, I'm very under, undermined. Um, my pain is underplayed. Um, what I go through is undermined. Pisu's story is unfortunately one of many harrowing and similar stories of racism and violence that Indigenous people face in the healthcare system. After reports came to light of a game that healthcare workers played that consisted of guessing the blood alcohol content of Indigenous patients in the ER, British Columbia's Health Minister Adrian Dix called for an independent investigation, which has since been published. The report found that 84% of Indigenous peoples in British Columbia had experienced instances of medical racism. Penny Kerrigan, a Haida elder, was medevac to a hospital in Terrace for severe stomach pain. She was discharged, as the attending doctor claimed that there was nothing medically wrong with her. 
She returned the next day, and another doctor diagnosed her with appendicitis. She needed emergency surgery. I just want to give a heads up. This next bit deals with potentially triggering violent medical subject matter pertaining to reproductive health and violence. In 2018, the CBC reported that a class action lawsuit headed by lawyer Alyssa Lumberd has led to over 100 Indigenous women claiming to be forced or coerced into being sterilized. One woman claims that after giving birth, healthcare workers refused to let her see her newborn until she agreed to being sterilized. Another claims that she remembers the smell of her fallopian tubes being cauterized. On September 28, 2020, Joyce Echequan died while under medical care at a hospital in Juliet, Quebec. On a viral Facebook Live video, the medical staff assisting can be heard calling her worthless and only good for sex, as she screamed and cried out in pain. Echequan was given morphine, a medication that she had an allergy to, and she was only 37 years old, the mother of seven and a member of a Tikamak nation. These situations are a glimpse into the harsh reality of how pervasive medical racism is and how harmful it has become to Indigenous peoples. But it isn't unique or novel in how it specifically targets Indigenous people. In many ways, it's a continuation of a long and storied history of colonial rule in Canada. And these examples are just the most recent and insidious iterations of colonial violence. In solidarity with the Wissuitan hereditary chiefs, Indigenous youth and their supporters started occupying the Legislative Assembly in so-called Victoria as one of the many actions taken throughout Canada. Like I personally consider what's happening on Wissuitan territory to be the cutting edge of, you know, a resistance to uh, an imposed worldview and a resistance to a form of assimilation that has affected, I guess, not only our peoples, but the majority of the people around the world who very much define their themselves as humans in relation to property, in relation to government, in relation to these colonial states, rather than in relation to the land, in relation to their teachings, their laws, their histories, and their responsibilities that they have to uh, not only other people, but also to the animals and the rivers and the mountains and the land itself. Mm-hmm. So very much, it's it's uh, it's a resistance that exists on a on an ontological level. It's kind of like fighting for your very being. That's what's happening on Wet'suwet'en territory, and I think that's why a lot of people are very inspired by what the Wet'suwet'en are doing. The support for the Wet'suwet'en comes from what Nila Axe explains as the asymmetrical conflict between the Wet'suwet'en's laws, ethics, and in greater terms, their worldview versus the neoliberal forces of what I would call like a twisted Judeo-Christian worldview where the land is to be subjugated 
and the people who do not believe in a certain faith or are not considered civilized by all these standards that were set by uh, the the Euro-Christian <laughs> hierarchy at the time. Mm-hmm. They were essentially deemed to be inhuman. This Christian Judeo hierarchy that Nila Axe alludes to places European empires above indigenous people. A good example of this is the legal concept of terra nullius, which means nobody's land. This allows European empires to discover new lands and claim it for their sovereigns, even though these lands have been occupied by indigenous peoples since time immemorial. The foundation of so-called Canada benefits directly from this idea of terra nullius. With the discovery of gold on the lower Fraser River, thousands of miners flocked to the region from the San Francisco Bay Area. Victoria became an important trade fulcrum and grew from a small colony of 500 to a burgeoning city of over 5,000 people by 1862. Around 2,000 Shimshian, Haida, and Clinket and other indigenous peoples made camps nearby as the area became a nexus for community and trade. In 1862, the first cases of smallpox were reported in Victoria, and over a few weeks it spread quickly to the indigenous peoples. Under pressure from local colonists, the indigenous peoples were forcibly removed to their communities under threats of violence. As they were forced out of their communities, colonists destroyed their property and their housing, And as they traveled back to their communities, smallpox traveled with them. It spread up the coast, west to Hadequai, and into the northern interior, to the Gixen. My my great-grandfather, Wiebe Achimsemogit, also spoke at this time, and he said, you know, there was so many people dying that entire houses were wiped out. There was so many bodies that we couldn't possibly do the proper protocols or, or ceremonies. We couldn't have feasts, we couldn't transfer on their names or their knowledge. Uh, Lots of elders passed, bringing their histories with them. A 2017 article from McLean's claimed as many as 60%, and in some estimates as many as 90% of Indigenous peoples in British Columbia perished from smallpox from 1862 to 1880. It was one of the most devastating apocalyptic times for our people in, in modern memory. And... And so there were so many bodies, he said, that, you know, it got to the point where we just had to wrap them in birch bark and bury them in mass graves because, like, there was simply no way to stay on top of the death toll at the time. If the loss of knowledge, language, and culture and the catastrophic deaths weren't bad enough, missionaries began coming to the Gixon lands, prophetizing Christianity. We had the missionaries arrive on our lands and they essentially began to tell us that the reason that your people are dying in such drastic numbers is because you uh because you don't believe in god because you're heathens and look like all of us christians um canadian christians are not dying from this disease so clearly it's your faith that's the issue then the land surveyors showed up they basically told us that they did not recognize our our claim to uh, the entirety of our territories. Instead, they set aside small parcels of land as reservations. And so this began one of the v- most oppressive times that we faced immediately following uh, a disaster on a scale never before seen. And 
ultimately our entire governance, our our way of life, our like who we were as humans, how we saw the world was made criminal. As Canada formed a confederation in 1867, and with the creation of the Indian Act in 1876 that I mentioned earlier, they sought to replicate England's systems of control in three key ways. Which is number one, extermination, which I firmly believe was a part of the, uh, the uh, settler complacency with the smallpox breakout. The Daily British Colonist, a Victoria-based newspaper, reported on the matter in July of 1862 of the emerging smallpox outbreak. Quote, How have the mighty fallen? Four short years ago, numbering their braves by thousands, they were the scourge and terror of the coast. Today, broken-spirited and effeminate, with scarce a corporal's guard of warriors remaining alive, they are proceeding northward, bearing with them the seeds of a loathsome disease that will take root and bring both a plentiful crop of ruin and destruction to the friends who have remained at home. At the present rate of mortality, not many months can elapse ere the northern Indians of this coast will exist only in story. The second one is assimilation, which uh, we continue to see to this day as the most prevalent form of settler colonialism, or at least the violence against our peoples. Residential schools, for instance, saw the forcible allocation of Indigenous, Métis, and Inuit children from their families into industrial schools. A generation later, the 60s scoop saw the widespread removal of indigenous children from their families to be placed in predominantly white families. And the third one was isolation, which was to completely remove the people from the land, to isolate them, to facilitate the development of the colony around them. Extermination, assimilation, and isolation are all forms that have historically been used by the Canadian government to control indigenous people. But these forms of colonial violence continue today. And if you want to look at really how powerless the band councils are, how powerless uh, we are governing ourselves within the framework of the Indian Act and the reservation, like it needs to be made clear to most people that we don't actually own any of this land. Like while it might not be fee simple private property, it's crown land. It's essentially held uh, held by the Queen, or uh, the Canadian government in right of the Queen. And so, you know, people wonder why we have such a hard time, uh, I guess, starting up any type of economic enterprise on the reservation. Well, that's essentially because, you know, we have absolutely no wealth in the form of property. So you can't get a mortgage, you can't get a loan, you don't have any collateral. And, uh, and no matter what you pour into your home, what you pour into your business or whatever it might be on the res, like essentially, yeah, that property isn't yours. It's uh, held in trust by the Canadian government, the federal government in right of the queen. And, uh, and so we were very much stripped of all of our powers and responsibilities in terms of our, our self-governance and, and essentially criminalized for attempting to exist as we had before that point. The reserve system set up by the Indian Act is a catch-22. 
On one hand, it's one of the few places that Indigenous people can live on their traditional territories and where, in theory, they can govern themselves. But there are also a lot of issues. For instance, a 2019 UN General Assembly report found that 75% of First Nation reserves don't have access to drinkable water, for instance. And they found that housing was abhorrent and violated the right to adequate housing. Indigenous peoples have differing but strong traditional forms of governance and social systems. In 1876, with the Indian Act, the new Canadian government sought to truncate these systems by imposing the chief and band council system. A chief and band council were elected for usually two-year terms under a new system as a replication of the Canadian government structures. Traditionally, in many Indigenous cultures, women, queer, two-spirit, and trans people played crucial government roles and crucial spiritual roles. But with the new system, they were shut out from governance, as only men could traditionally run and hold office. Traditional governments, social systems, and cultural practices became outlawed to ensure Indigenous peoples conformed to the new systems. And we see the cultural hangover of this occurring as many forms of Indigenous governance are dominated by cisgendered heterosexual men. And if you want to learn more, I highly recommend checking out Emily Riddle's article, Indigenous Governance is Gay in Guts magazine. And a big part of that was the banning of, I guess, the potlatch ban. That was something that had repercussions all along the coast because many of us especially in the northern coast, uh, do come from house-based cultures in which uh, the feast or the potlatch is uh, a central part of our governance and uh, a central part of how we relate to community and basically demonstrate our law or pass on names or resolve disputes within a a very communal democratic setting. Mm -hmm. And so this was made entirely illegal. We had Indian agents that were imposed upon our territories who had uh, authoritarian powers to dictate our lives. We had puppet band councils who were entirely paid for by the federal government and essentially served as agents of the crown in facilitating our own assimilation. And we had the RCMP, which played a huge role in all of this, specifically in forcibly uh, arresting our chiefs. Banning the potlash was a crucial way of imposing colonial rule. The potlash is an important governmental structure and is also critical for food and resource relocation within the community. Uh, another one of my ancestors um, who held the name Khlim Lacha and uh, his English name at the time, even though English names were relatively new, was Edward Sexsmith. And he was one of the first chiefs, um, I believe in the 1920s, who held a feast openly up in uh, Anspayach, my my home village. And uh, he did this in defiance of the potlatch ban that existed at the time. And he was forcibly removed from the feast hall by the RCMP in the dead of winter and thrown in the jail cell um, in Hazelden. And it was there that he basically contracted pneumonia and died in the jail cell due to exposure. And I can't tell you how many of our families have stories like this, of uh, our leaders, of our, of our ancestors who put everything on the line to stand up to, to the colony, to the state, to protect the very essence of who we are. And 
lost their lives as a result. So this struggle that we're seeing on Wet'suwet'en territory, this struggle on Gixan territory, um, many of the the unceded sovereign nations who do hold up their traditional governance structures, it's it's not new. It's Despite all the Gixan and the Wet'suwet'en and other indigenous nations had endured, they held onto their government structures, their leadership systems, and their culture. Through keeping these leadership forms alive, they are demonstrating a, a refusal to assimilate within the Canadian structure. They're demonstrating a refusal to simply be integrated as another minority or interest group within so-called multicultural Canada. And also they are consistently contesting the notion that Canada even has sovereignty over those territories. This constant and simple challenge to the claim of sovereignty resonates throughout so-called Canada. It has lit a fire in the youth of Indigenous people from coast to coast to coast and inspired actions throughout so-called Canada. It moved the youth for Wissowatan to proclaim that reconciliation is dead as the Legislative Assembly fountain ran red. And that's the reason why, over and over, we have to take it to the front lines. We have to make noise. We have to put ourselves in the line of fire. And, uh, you know, so many of our uh, elders, so many of our parents, uh, the generations that came before us, you know, they had to fight this their entire life without ever seeing any form of resolution. And so, you know, every single one of us, each generation, has fought this with the intention that their descendants would not have to struggle with these issues. And so we're just continuing on this, uh, this legacy of trying to survive as humanity, as, as a humanity that's very much defined by our land and uh, the place that we come from. disabled, queer, and Nehiwa, peace who has always had to be an advocate for themselves. If I didn't advocate for myself, who would have advocated, right? And I think it's important that, especially with like what's going on in the world right now, um, that, that we need to advocate for ourselves. Pisu is fierce and strong in their water and land defense work. So many times, like, I want to get angry and I just, like, want to, you know, the little bit of a, the res comes out of me and I'm like, I just want to fight. <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> um, but I just, like, I just, like, remember, like, closing my eyes and there was a drum going on and I could hear the drum and I just remember, like, listening to that drum and being like, you're not here to fight anyone. You're here to... 
you're marching for like your land and you know like a lot of people like they think like well, what does marching do um but uh like you're, you're here on the front lines and you're here to set out a message you're not here to violently confront people who want to fight you <laughs> and that encapsulates pisu's work advocating for themselves at a young age gave them the ability and the drive to advocate and empower others for Pisu, being a full-spectrum birth worker means... Being a full-spectrum birth worker, you know, like, you you hear the term and people don't know what it means. Um, and I do the quick explanation. I'm like, you know, a full-spectrum birth worker is someone who supports someone in all aspects of birth, reproductive health, um, pregnancy, life. Um, so, you know, like, having, having the access to... Um, be able to be supported through any choice you know if, if you find out you're pregnant um and you don't want to be pregnant that's okay if you find out that you're pregnant and you do want to be pregnant that's okay um if you are looking through options of surrogacy adoption um you know f- having someone who will support you through that you it's not even it's not even about supporting the person who is immediately pregnant it's about supporting you know like in the in the terms of adoption and surrogacy supporting the parents who are giving that baby up for adoption or the person who is pregnant um in the terms of surrogacy it's supporting both ends but it's it's also recognizing that people of all genders sexual orientation relationship status socioeconomic status can birth and can be bar- and can be parents or can decide that they don't want to continue su- a pregnancy or don't want to be par- a pre- uh, parents and you know regardless of their choices or situations deserve to have access to health care and support that is humanistic informed consensual culturally appropriate um supportive just in all aspects Colonialism erased and outlawed many aspects of Indigenous traditions, especially so with birth work. The one thing that I really wanted to speak on was, um, you know, a lot of our, especially if they're not in urban settings, like especially if they're living in their communities or their reserves, um, a lot of them have to leave their communities um, and a lot of them have to leave their families to go to the city to um, complete their pregnancies and give birth. Um, and you know, the, the, the government uses the term evacuated. Medical evacuations are common for indigenous people who live in reserves or in rural communities. They're medically justified based on statistics such as high infant mortality rates or low birth rates, but in many ways, these evacuations can cause more harm than good. Indigenous people have a have a strong value of family, whether that's close or extended. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're placed hundreds of miles away from your homelands without your family, you're being put in a position that can be traumatic, um, a position that ignores and disregards your bodily autonomy, your traditions, and your values. Um, And when we're not able to birth on our traditional lands, and we're not able to have access 
to care on our traditional lands, we are, we have the consequences of not being able to pass down, um, you know, our traditional teachings and our ceremonies, um, which is a form of cultural genocide and coerced assimilation. In 2019, the National Aboriginal Council of Midwives called for the end of the routine evacuation of pregnant Indigenous peoples. They cited the necessity for births to take place on traditional territories safely. Midwifery and Indigenous communities were prevalent and well-documented prior to contact with settlers. But with the Indian Act and the residential school system, much of that knowledge was lost. But Pisu and Indigenous doulas are reclaiming birth work for their communities. So your Otsi is your belly button. Um, and when you're saying that, you're not actually saying, like, this is where I'm from. You're saying, like, like where your mother is from. Because, hmm. um, like, you, you know, you're connected to your mother through the umbilical cord. So I'm talking about, like, I'm more, I'm more so talking about, like, where my mother is from. And where my mother is from is where I am from. For Pisu's community, that connection to their home comes from the matrilineal line, and that connection comes from your belly button and umbilical cord. Back to the belly button, like, uh, there's a joke always being made, like, oh, I, yeah, I didn't bury your belly button, so you're nosy. Uh, and for such a long time, I was like, what does that mean? And then I found out the teaching is that when your babies are born and you have your placenta ceremony, um, you, you take that placenta and that, that umbilical cord and you, you bury it. Um, and you don't just bury it anywhere. You bury it where you want your child to be connected. Um, and you bury it with things that you want your child to be able to do. So let's say like traditionally, um, you would, you would bury that placenta in your community, um, or where that baby was born. Um, if it was born at home, um, and you would, you would be able to plant it with, a tree or sometimes what they would do is they would they would plant it with certain objects and these objects would signify what you what you wanted wanted your child to be when they were older so if you wanted your child to be like a good hunter like you would bury it with any hunting equipment or if you wanted your child to be a seamstress you would bury it with uh you know sewing needles and yarn or so on and so forth mm -hmm. um so that there's that placenta ceremony um, and that, you know, that's that's what I was taught. Um, everyone has their own different teachings. And I think one thing that I really want to um, make aware is that I don't speak for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, this is what I was taught. So these are my my teachings and what I believe. And, and everyone else has different teachings depending on what community you're from. There are traditions and ceremonies that take place with birth work, and Pisu is there to support those going through birth, through that process, to be an advocate. Because you know, for like example, a lot of a lot of our, a lot of our, um, people who are pregnant, and and you know, I say people because, I'm very like exclusive. It's it's not, it's not only just women, that mm -hmm. give birth. Um, so. For our indigenous people who who are pregnant, you know, a lot of them are birthing within urban settings and within Western medical institutions, um, and we see a lot of a lot of medical racism, a lot of inadequate care, a lot of stereotypes. 
For indigenous peoples, hospitals are inhospitable places, but birth workers like Pisu are helping to indigenize those spaces. It's traumatizing being in those spaces. Um, you know, you kind of you kind of just like shut down. You go into survival mode. You you kind of just surrender um, because it's it is scary. And and having someone there who is also you know an indigenous person to advocate for you and to make space and to to speak for you when you can't is is so important. The self-advocacy that Pisu has honed over the years has become a valuable and essential tool for Indigenous people going through births. They provide care, support, advocacy, and comfort that is the panacea to the inhospitable natures of hospitals. When we bring birth back to the land, we're, you know, we're bringing back our language and we're bringing back our traditions and we're bringing back our sovereignty to be able to birth how we want to and to be able to have control over our own bodies and over our own needs and wants. The connection to indigenous peoples and the land is inextricable. For instance, I'm Dene. I come from Denede. And our elders say that if all the Dene were to die, the people that would come to the land, wherever they may be from, the land would teach them how to be Dene. And if you think about how true that may be, the food we eat, the oxygen we breathe, the water we drink, it all comes from the land in one way or another. Our lives are interwoven and interconnected to land. And I think that connection flows the other way as well. That violence to the land can manifest a violence in communities, individuals, and bodies. And it's so like it's so deeply rooted in like greed. Because um, yeah. I think a lot of people see the land as something that you can take from. And something that like like the land gives right yeah but in order for the land to give you have to give back mm -hmm. and i don't I, I think a lot of people don't understand that where pisu lives in alberta resource extraction is the dominant industry driving the economy traditionally jobs in oil and gas industries were high paying but long hours it's demanding work and often dangerous we have what they call man camps yeah um and those, you know, those are those are camps of mostly white males um, working in the oil fields, um, and a, a lot of these reserves, a lot of the remote reserves, are located near these man camps, and we've seen, which is like, you know, we've seen an increase of drug trafficking, of sef of sex trafficking, of violence and crimes against Indigenous women. In 2019, the final report of the National Inquiry of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and LGBTQQIA2S+, reported that these man camps were implicated in higher rates of violence against Indigenous women in the camps or in neighboring communities. These camps are populated by mostly male and mostly transient workers. The final report found connections of man camps to increase crimes, especially those of drug and alcohol offenses, but also of sexual offenses, domestic, and gang-related violence. If you have time, I would highly recommend listening to Thunder Bay by Canada Land. It's a deep dive into how the transient nature of a community can bear violence, racism, and mortal danger to Indigenous peoples. I reached out to Pisu because I wanted to hear their stories about re-Indigenizing birth work. 
Birth is the beginning of life. The breaking of water. Um, my name translates to Thunderbird. When they're 15 or 16, they're living in a group home on their reserve. The group home was on my reserve. Um, so, you know, it was, it was kind of bittersweet, like, to be back on my homelands, but to be in a setting of, like, like child welfare. <laughs> um, but luckily enough, um, the group home workers were all Indigenous, um, and they were really adamant on reconnecting the youth to their culture. They took Pisu and the other youth to the Sundance, and there, Pisu was given their name. And when I got my name, I didn't understand what it meant. I, I had no idea. I was like, okay, um, cool. It sounds cool. <laughs> um, but I was always told that one day you would eventually find out the meaning of your name and why you got that name, because everyone gets a name for a reason. And I was... When they were doing training with the Native View Sexual Health Network in 2017, an elder came up and asked them what their name was. Asking for my English name, and I said, Pisu. And she looks at me, and she's like, oh. She's like, that makes so much sense. And I was like, huh? <laughs> and she's like, you know, the, the bringer of water. You know, the, the first thing that happens before a baby is born is the breaking of water. And I was like, oh. That does make sense. Like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this work as a birth worker. I'm, I'm here, you know, helping pregnant people bring their babies into the world. And I'm also here, like, doing the work that I can to advocate for water protection and land defense. And it just made sense. Pisu's birth work, their land and water defense work are connected because birth Water, land, culture, language, governance, they're all connected to each other. Indigenous people, Métis, Inuit, are as varied and different as the landscapes throughout so-called Canada. From coast to coast to coast, there are hundreds of different nations, different languages, cultures, traditions, and people. And I got asked by an interviewer, you know, like, what inspired you to do this? And I responded like, you know, there's no inspiration when it comes to putting like my colored disabled body on the front lines. Like I don't get any inspiration from that. That's it's scary. It's, it's dangerous. I, you know, I'm putting myself at risk, but it's, it's an obligation. Um, it's like, it's an obligation to secure and to protect our lands for our future generations. Like the, the work that I do, you know, it's not a hobby. Um, it, it isn't for fun, it's tiring, and it's exhausting, and it's, it's traumatizing. And, you know, at times it's dangerous. Um, like, the, the work that I do as, as, a, as a birth worker and, an, and a, you know, disability advocate and a land defender, it's, it's to and for my people. Um, the only inspiration that I hope that comes out of the work that I do is that it can empower others to do the same. We all share the scars of colonialism, but I think we share something more important and more valuable. We are people of the land. Traditionally, we relied on the land to feed us, to clothe us, to shelter us, and to teach us. 
you learn to respect the animals and the plants and the medicine. And we see the earth is not an inanimate object to be exploited and used, but as living and sentient and deserving of our respect and our gratitude. I think we all share the importance of reciprocity. What gives me hope is, yeah, the fact that my ancestors never gave up. And like, they definitely lived through lives that were much harder than the ones <laughs> than the one that I'm living right now. So, you know, it's, it's not even a possibility for, yeah, me to compromise that hope, that dream, that vision that's been handed down to me. And like, I definitely want to fill that up with everything that I can to contribute in any way that I can to our laws, our governance, and uh, our leadership. There, there's this, there's this prophecy that they speak of. It's, um, it's called the, like there's the seven generations, right? Mm -hmm. And they say that right now we are in the seventh generation, and the seventh generation is the generation that will be the ones who bring back the language, and bring back the culture, and bring back the ceremonies. Um, because the last generations were the ones that, you know, were, were, were taken away from the government to be put in residential schools. Our survivors of the residential school systems, our survivors of the 60s scoop. And while we do still see like the intergenerational effects of that, we're also seeing a shift of where this generation is realizing the importance of reclamation, realizing the importance of culture and ceremony. Um, and I think within that, they're also, they're strong, they're resilient. Like they're also, you know, they're the ones that are on the front lines. They're the ones that are holding it down and <laughs> putting themselves in, these positions that are risky to protect their lands and their language and their community and everything else that will continue to benefit the generations that come. So I guess what gives me hope is the youth mm -hmm. um, and you know also the elders who hold space and pave the way for the youth. The main things that inspired me to to make films and like more appropriately, as you mentioned, to tell stories is, uh, you know, an old quote from the Delgamuch versus British Columbia days in which Samoyget Delgamuch um, said, what do we have to fear? We have the truth behind us. Cassidy Villabrin Horakis. Dene Talk is written, produced, and edited by myself, with support from Coco Nielsen, Glenn Swarnadipathy, Andrew Hines, Nicola Watts, and Ash Hampson. Special thanks to the staff and volunteers of CFUB 101.9 FM. Artwork for Dene Talk is done by Nicole Neidhart, 
and music for today's episode is provided by Sarah the Instrumentalist, Peter Sandberg, and Lars Meyer. Must you show to my guests for today's episode, Nila Ax, whose English name is Colin Sutherland Wilson, and Peace Ukraine. I'd like to say a special thanks to Phoenix Bain and Jordan Cooey for their continual support throughout this project. If you'd like to find out more about Nila Axe's film work, or if you want to find a link to the GoFundMe to help Pisu get a service dog, visit denetalk.ca. Masicho for listening. Have a nice day.